Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The first step towards getting somewhere is to decide that you are not going to stay where you are. Here's a quote from John Pierpont Morgan, or J.P. Morgan, the American financier and one of the world's foremost financial figures during the wave of industrial consolidation in the United States in the late 19th century. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today. Someone at the helm of one of Australia's leading accelerators, working closely with founders and playing an instrumental role in supporting the growth of the companies of the future. Our guest is Michael Batko, Chief Executive Officer of startup accelerator Startmate. Over the past decade, Startmate have invested in over 190 startups with a collective portfolio value of $2 billion. He was previously head of operations and before that was involved in a number of startups as well. Hello and welcome to Series 10 of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in the United States, Austria, and Israel, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory. In today's discussion, Michael welcomes us to the epicenter for startup ambition across Australia and New Zealand, where they work closely with founders, mentors, angel investors, and venture funds. He shares with us the rigors today entrepreneurs go through, the common denominator and some of the successful startups they've supported, and the overwhelming power of the community pervading through this unique ecosystem. He touches on the challenges facing founders and why it takes a force of nature to change the game. So sit back and enjoy the forces of nature. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. How do you expose yourself to luck? I think you've said something about that during your career. How do you do it? Yeah, totally. Increasing the surface area of luck to strike is one of my favorite quotes, absolutely. It's so much around just putting yourself out there. Like so many people hide behind a rock and you just don't even know how to help them. Whereas it is actually painful and uncomfortable just to put yourself out there on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, and actually just tell people like, this is what I need help with. And it has helped me so often in my career. Do I ram it down people's throats? Do I be subtle with it? Do I turn up at events? Do I take the room? What do I do? Usually people are uncomfortable with it. So I always recommend taking small steps. So whatever you actually are comfortable with, 
Usually um, people don't like posting on um, social media, for example, because they feel afraid that people might have different opinions. Rather than stating really strong opinions, I usually recommend my team, for example, at Startmate, to just ask questions, ask questions, get answers, learn together. And that in itself, by asking questions, you're almost like explicitly, implicitly, like asking for help. And that in itself, like actually triggers a whole snowball almost of people literally like helping you and you're increasing the surface area for luck to strike because you never know who actually comes out of the woodwork. Yeah, pretty amazing how many people actually like to help, isn't it? Mm, uh, especially in the startup industry. Honestly, you can hit up anybody for a 30-minute chat and coffee chat and every founder will sit down with you and, and tell you about the vision and the mission they're on. Okay. So what is the culture of ambition? Yeah, that's actually something that um, we talk about a lot at Startmate. Um, and one of my favorite quotes in that um, regard is actually, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that's actually such an interesting concept because that's actually just shows you how, like, how important it is about the people you surround yourself with or literally on a daily basis. And the start made is exactly that, that saying of, um, we always will believe in you. We will never ridicule your ambition. So often in our lives, we tell somebody a great idea and people instantly go and shoot it down, tell us all the reasons why it wouldn't work. Whereas again, like in the startup industry, especially at Startmate, like, you surround yourself with people who have crazier ideas than yourself. <laughs> and rather than going, no, you can't do it, they literally go like, how can you do that even 10 times more or better? And that is actually kind of the mindset you want to expose yourself with. So what's the difference between a startup and an accelerator or how do they come together? Yes, so this startups essentially, um, the way I define it is small companies which grow incredibly fast. They obviously are going against an industry which is... Um, entrenched around for hundreds of years and the benefit that they have is they, they move super super fast and accelerate itself what we do actually is we invest in 20 to 30 companies every year and then we help them accelerate over the course of three months so we literally put them into like a pressure cooker and what actually happens is out of the pressure cooker we put so much pressure on them to actually go after customers and grow and grow and grow that either they actually explode and implode or they actually get refined into what we then say a diamond in the pressure cooker itself. Okay, so when does the 80-20 rule come into play as you uh, often talk about? Ah, oh, all the time. I mean, that's what startups are all about. It's so, so much around like not getting hung up onto perfectionism, shipping, getting things out there, e-trading, testing, and just being, again, uncomfortable with putting yourself out there with an unfinished, not perfect product because what you want is literally customer feedback all the time because that's actually how you will get customer feedback. You will actually build stuff that people actually want. So yeah, we call it Startmate. It's actually one of our core values. We literally call it Just Startmate, as our name name says. Michael, I'm going to come to your interesting background in a few minutes, but maybe while the audience is engaged in what we're talking about right here, what actually is Startmate? Yes, so Startmate itself is um, is an accelerator. We do that essentially for founders, for investors, and for people who want to join startups. So we essentially run programs um, to either help you found a company or actually accelerate that journey of your company itself. And we invest $120,000 into each one of our companies. We do that for investors as well. If you want to come on an angel investor journey itself to even just explore what would it look like for me to invest in startups. And we do that in a very practical sense. And we do that for literally um, over a thousand people now in Australia and New Zealand every year who are even thinking, I might want to join a startup as I'm such. These come usually from banking, consulting, lawyers, retail workers, etc. And they have this idea that like, I might want to have a startup in the future myself, or I want to work on something I'm truly passionate about. So we have um, fellowship programs, which actually help you kind of dip your toes into what it could look like for you. 
Who succeeds? Those who want the money or those who want to follow the dream? It's the ones who are customer obsessed. Like it's not even about the passion or the money. It's literally the person who just like will not stop at anything to make that problem go away. How do you pick that up? Is it just that their presence, the questions that you get, the the follow-up that you get? We actually call it like almost like a force of nature. And you know those people, like if you see somebody like that, you literally are like, oh my God, you are literally, I don't know anything about this and you're bringing me along the journey and I want to help you. I have zero idea, but I believe that you know what you're talking about. All right. So I'm going to give you all my hard-earned time, my effort. What am I going to get back from you? How are you yeah, going totally. to make me successful? <laughs> uh, there's, uh, there's no way anyone can make you successful. As in, It is literally all about the founder and customers. And that's what we keep coming back to. It's not about fundraising. It's not about, not about all of the shiny things that uh, people always think it is. It literally is around stepping into that pain of actually cold calling people, sending them emails, getting rejections all the time. And what you get from me or for an accelerator is literally that that accountability, that pressure to actually get you there because the only way you're going to progress is you're going to have to step through that pain and reflect on it. And if you put pain and reflection together, that's the only way um, you're actually going to progress there. Everyone knows one step closer to a yes, is it? Absolutely. Like it's literally in one of our accelerator cohorts, what I did was a rejection therapy. I literally uh, made them compete against each other where they were like, who is going to get the most no's um, from customers this week? <laughs> and it is all about literally like getting out there and getting that no because you're actually going to be learning on how to do it better next time. And what's the truth to that? No doesn't mean no, it's against me personally. No, it's maybe I haven't actually got my concept across to you and maybe I should go away and think about it. What does no actually, or no, I'm too busy. What does no mean? Yeah, totally. No can mean two things really. Like one is I'm talking to the wrong person, which is great because you're actually choosing the customer segment. And the second thing is if it is the right person, then it means I'm not building the right thing. Um, And that in itself, like every single no actually teaches you to get closer and closer to actually solving that person's problem. Should I really listen to customers? Or do I back my own hunch? So this is really interesting as well, because essentially um, we surround our founders with so many mentors and they get so much advice and feedback from mentors, from customers and so on. The problem is though, like you guys receive so much conflicting advice as well, right? Mm. So like the worst founders, actually, what they do is listen to everybody and then they go away and just don't do anything. The worst founders also listen to nobody and then they actually go away and build something that nobody wants. (laughs) The best founders actually take the 10 or 20% of valid feedback, they act on that. And at the 80% of feedback, and tell them, sorry, I hear you, but I'm not going to go after it right now. And it's that decisiveness, which actually makes the difference. Why don't you share some stories, Michael? Oh, some stories on the nose. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I mean, the great stories here, as I mentioned, like talking to customers, it's easily said, but not easily done. So one of the great stories I've got here is maybe um, in the accelerator, as I mentioned, I did this rejection therapy where I literally challenged the founders to like get the most no's. And um, one of the teams, for example, was a team of three PhD students who were like incredible at what they did. They were literally putting a device on a farm, sucking in the air and telling the farmers what diseases are on that farm. But actually getting out there and talking to a farmer was scary, right? So essentially what they did as a team is um, I literally said, whoever out of the three of the co-founders is going to get the most no's this week, I'm going to buy you a case of beer. And that was it. And that literally got them to literally just start talking to customers. At the end of the week, they all talked to 10, 20 people, had probably like one or two kind of like letters of intent commitments. And it was just kind of that 
light bulb moment for them that actually that is truly going to get them that insight that they need to actually start building the right thing. How much is based on confidence? Um, Pretty hard to is, get up if you get knocked back all day long, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you get knocked. I mean, as a founder, anyway, you're, you're getting so much rejection. I always say, um, actually, to your previous question as well of ambition, because I feel like ambition and confidence kind of go together, where ambition is not something that we're actually born with. Ambition, like, you don't wake up, like, you don't get born into this world as a baby and you're suddenly super ambitious and you take the first steps and everybody is walking around. Ambition is actually a reaction to things going right or confidence, like you said. It's actually that reaction and some people react to it and become more ambitious with that kind of confidence and success. And some people then pull back. And it's actually the people who become founders and entrepreneurs who just keep building on that confidence to actually come up with those crazy visions that we think are crazy, but they're actually totally achievable. So out of the people that you've backed thus far with those crazy missions who've walked through the front door, which ones strike in your mind as the ones that really set the example? Yeah. Maybe you didn't even realize how good they could be. <laughs> totally, yeah. I mean, we've got some incredible companies um, in there. Uh, I can share a couple of stories maybe. We have... Um, I mean, just for context, maybe we back companies when there's, when there's literally one founder and an idea, that's it. They don't have a customer. They don't have a team. They don't have any money. They literally, we give them $120,000 to get started, right? Based on what? What are you, what are you basing it on? Based on a business plan, based on a hell of a good presentation. So, you know, 120,000 is a risk. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a big risk, but it's massive payoff as well when things do go right. So, um, and um, what do we base it on? We base it all on the founder and the person. And what I mentioned there is like that custom obsession and that force of nature. Okay. And it's that person itself where you know the company they're building is going to go for 15 different changes down the line. If the company actually succeeds to like 15, 20 years down the line, the solution that you invest in right now will not be anything like it will be in 15 years time. But you're backing the person that they can figure out what the customer truly needs. So back to the story itself, which I can actually share with like um, of, of an incredible company. So we've got a company called Swoop Arrow and they essentially deliver life-saving medication with drones into really remote areas. Yep. So the company again was like two founders who joined Startmate with not a single customer. And I mean, as you can imagine, they literally have to work with governments, with huge organizations worldwide to actually deliver medication, which again, so many different regulations, yep. which are involved there. And um, those founders just went all in one of them is uh, an Air Force pilot. The other one was one of the top drone racers in the world. And again, like two people who had nothing. And they just went through one country to another. They literally like flew to Vanuatu. There was the first contract. So there was literally flying drones on Vanuatu kind of islands to deliver all of that life-saving medication. And then they went like one country to the next one, building the ambition time and time and time again. And now they actually spread over, like, I think, six or seven countries in like Mozambique, I believe, in Nigeria, um, all over Africa, essentially, and a couple of Southeast Asian countries as well. And that a team of like 100, 150 people literally like making drones in Australia and delivering that medication all over the world. It's, it's super impressive. But judging the makeup of someone who's going to be successful, some of the most successful people aren't necessarily extroverts, are they? So they're not necessarily force of nature when they walk into the room. They may totally, already, yeah. they, they've got the solutions, they've anticipated better than most, they've got the strategic mindset, but they're not going to be, you know, the hard part is that are they naturally going to be great on that telephone opening the doors, but they may be brilliant in bringing the strategy that to allow someone else to execute, but they need your support. 
That's right. Like it actually doesn't mean a founder has to be an extrovert at all. And many, like you said, are not. Many are actual experts in the things that they do. But what they're incredible at though is that storytelling of their mission and vision and then getting people excited and bringing them aboard. Because what they need to be great at is painting in this incredible vision for people to literally leave their full-time jobs and join them in a startup which probably pays them way less and probably is a fair bit more insecure from like a traditional perspective. But they can actually get them on board and with the best team, you can actually get the best customers and with the best customers or like with many customers, you can then also bring investors on board. So it literally is about that person who doesn't need to be an extrovert, but who just is so, again, coming back to the concept of force of nature that they can literally get the team around them. So it's more about the people than it is about the technology? I would say yes. Yeah, it is actually about the people being customer obsessed because like the technology itself, um, an idea is fleeting. Anyone can have an idea. It is okay. literally all about the execution. And anyone can steal ideas as well. But um, at the end of the day, it's actually the team which is the closest to the customer who will do nothing else but solve that, who hears the feedback, constantly in- implements it, which will actually make it happen. Okay, so if I was that ex-Air Force pilot or, or the person you mentioned a minute ago, I have that dream and I buddy up with somebody else, I come and see you, we win that contract in Vanuatu, I'm going to need some more people. I can't afford to pay a market rate, so I sell them a dream. And that's not going to get everyone. How do I actually get them across the line? Am I giving away potential equity? Was that too early to do that? Like, what's the rule of thumb here to attract the very best? Absolutely. So, like, usually what happens is you get a salary and an equity together, like an equity package. What we, um, we usually see startups doing, what we recommend is actually you get three different packages. So you mm-hmm. decide yourself in terms of your lifestyle, what you want as well. So you essentially choose between a low salary and a high equity package or a high equity, low salary package and the one in between. So also people who are later down the life with kids and mortgages, they prefer a different type of package than the kind of uni graduates. So you do adjust for that. And the equity itself is really the drawing card for employees because you are sold to the dream. The company can genuinely have a billion dollar outcome. And that can be life-changing. And why so many, you know, the 80-20 rule, 20% make it, 80% don't, probably is, I guess, is the consistent metric here. Why do so many people fail? Because oh, it's incredibly hard. It's one of those things where the odds are 100% stacked against you. Like every single thing is, the whole world is stacked against you. Like there are huge companies already doing it. And there's probably like hundreds of regulations you need to take care of. Building a company is incredibly hard. If it doesn't implode in terms of the people you manage, in terms of the basic systems you need to create, it literally is like every single challenge of building a company you're also facing, as well as, and this is the additional pressure on the, on the startup, you're growing incredibly fast. And when you do grow incredibly fast, things break. There's almost like this rule of um, of free exits. Every time a company triples, everything breaks. It's like when a company goes from three to nine people, all of the systems don't work anymore because in the nine people, you can still be in one room. When it goes from nine to 27 people, suddenly you can't get everybody in one room anymore. So you actually need to create different systems. When it goes from 27 to like a hundred people, again, like the whole communication structure and everything around it breaks. So um, back to your question of just like, essentially even just running a company is hard. Apart from actually the idea being innovative, bringing customers on board, bringing investors on board. And there's just so many hurdles to jump over. And that's actually what we can help with in an accelerator. Yeah, and Michael, just out of interest, does everything have to be at pace? Because we talk about startup, startup has this, you know, almost like I've got to get to such and such by such and such and time, then the scale will kick in, etc. Does it have to be like the rule book like that? Um, if we look at Japanese yes. companies, 
you know, historically, et cetera. Sustainable companies, right? Been around mm. for a long period of time. But they weren't yeah, using the word startup. But maybe they were, maybe different language in those days. Has the model changed dramatically? Um, you can build a profitable company from the start. It is possible. But as you said, they actually usually grow a lot slower because you essentially always need to kind of like be just ahead of the curve to be profitable, hire the next person, etc. Whereas if you are growing incredibly fast, you want to actually optimize for that opportunity. So you usually then actually need to hire way faster. So you actually need to then also grow faster and raise more money at the same time. And once you are actually on that wheel of like raising money, it's almost like um, <laughs> I think I heard a great quote from Nikki Stravak, the founder of Blackbird, which is like, um, once you are on it, it is like you need fuel for a rocket ship and you need to constantly refuel it. Um, and this is kind of what it what it's kind of like. And that kind of like investment journey, especially, is kind of like this kind of like two year cycle where like once you're on it, you can't get off it. Yeah. Okay. So is there lots of fuel floating around in Australia? Lots of fuel, a lot more than we had five to 10 years ago, which is actually a great thing because Australians definitely have that um, competitive advantage. We've done so well in the last 10 years, like literally the VC industry is actually booming. There's so much more support than there used to be as well. And a lot of um, money actually from the superannuation funds, which has been incredible to see because they're genuinely startups are creating the future for Australia. So it's such an important, um, such an important element to actually invest in. So what would you change about education in this country? Well, I'm kind of changing it already because um, I'm kind of um, a bit sick of um, waiting for slow kind of government and university kind of implementation. So one thing, for example, that we've done at StartMed is um, we've launched a student fellowship. A student fellowship is literally the idea of giving students a new pathway, which is to actually start their own startup or join a startup. And we literally run it for two, three weeks as a boot camp in the summer and the winter holidays for students and mm-hmm. to just expose them to startups. So to your question, what would I change? The thing that I have changed in the student fellowship is make it super practical rather than actually education and textbook and just telling people what marketing it is and teaching about the four P's. What if you actually get them in front of Facebook advertising, let them play around with it, let them create a marketing campaign and see what it's really like. So the essence of creativity, is it encouraged enough? Well, so that's the thing. Like I feel like 99% of jobs are in corporates, are in traditional jobs, right? It is actually sadly not in universities kind of almost best interest to educate you for that one percent which actually creates the future of jobs because they know 99 percent of people will actually end up in one of the corporate jobs and so to answer your question no i actually do think creativity is something that we actually just need to put way more value on and just encourage people to and back to your other question of just like the belief and ambition and just give that to people that like yes you can do it rather than just become another cog in the machine to make a large company work so, Michael, why should I listen to someone who started out in their first job as an entertainer in Greece? Why should I listen <laughs> to what you say? <laughs> um, <laughs> Must have been a pretty good entertainer. <laughs> oh, I love it. Like um, the job itself was uh, was a fun one because um, it just um, taught me how to actually motivate people, get them around me, and get the right team to actually. Um, step out of the comfort zone and do something different. So the reason you should listen to me is just because I've actually like worked with probably over a hundred startups by now. I've literally worked with over a couple of thousand people who all join startups. And it's actually that light, which I see in people's eyes when they go through this like eight to 12 week kind of fellowship experience, they change jobs and they're like, oh my God, previously I didn't even imagine that I could love my job or be this passionate about what I actually do. Your background, you want to share a bit of, to the audience, a bit about where you come from? The surroundings, mum and dad, different part of the world? 
Yeah, sure. Like, um, so my, my parents are Polish and um, they emigrated to Austria just after the Cold War in the late 1980s. And I grew up first just speaking Polish. They sent me to kindergarten within, without speaking a single word of German. I then learned a bunch of other languages as well. And my parents very much came from the poor background, kind of working on building sites, essentially. And that is actually a big part of my upbringing where we didn't have much money. And, um, and my dad was always about actually like, investing in yourself but also investing your money rather than being employed so back yourself absolutely back yourself and and actually also just invest long term rather than um keep spending all right and so the family takes the big risk makes the move from poland to austria you educate yourself and what opportunities open well, I was so lucky with my upbringing because my parents were just so insanely supportive. For them, like putting me through a great school was actually so important, actually giving me the opportunity. And similar to what we said before, belief and ambition, they mm-hmm. always essentially told me to like, if I want to study abroad, go for it, which I didn't did. I studied in the UK. If you want to pursue an opportunity, go for it rather than kind of like boxing you in into like, you need to become a doctor, a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I was incredibly lucky in that they literally told me, do whatever makes you happy. And that actually just allowed me to explore and the exploration, especially in the early stages of a career is so important. I think one of the best things people can do when they're in uni um, or just after uni is actually do lots of internships. And that's not even to figure out what you want to do. It's almost to figure out what you don't want to do mm-hmm. <laughs> because you learn so much about yourself. And that took you to different parts of the world, didn't it? Yeah, so I worked in a fair few countries, which was great. I mean, I worked in Ireland, in Germany, in the UK, in Austria, in Germany, or you said, um, in Malta, Cyprus, yeah. So one, when you're doing that, you've got to learn to communicate with people, don't you? Yes. So um, definitely super interesting working with different cultures, especially in Europe when you've got um, so many different languages and attitudes floating around. All right. So when did you make the big step or decision to pack the bags and come down to Terra Australis? I think that's a classic example of many international people who come to Australia, which is I met my partner in, um, in Stockholm whilst I was in an exchange in Sweden, and she yep. was Australian from Newcastle. So she was very much the reason I moved to Australia on the work and travel visa. And um, I initially just came for a year wanting to work in a bar in hospitality. And before I knew it, I kind of ended up in a startup. So talk us through that. So a startup in what? Yeah, so um, actually, I'll tell you a story here as well, because um, coming back to one of the things we said all the way at the beginning, which was increasing a surface area for luck to strike. One yes. of the things I did, I've never been to Australia before, I literally posted on my university alumni group being like, hey, who's got a job for me in Australia? And a friend of a friend of a friend essentially tagged a couple of people in this post, and I got introduced to this founder of this company of two people. <laughs> so um, he was like, hey, I don't have a job, but come and play um, soccer five-side soccer. So I went there, played, and he's like, oh, I still don't have a job for me, but you're really good at soccer. So we played for two or three weeks, and um, literally three, four weeks later, that opportunity arose where he's like, oh, I've got somebody going on maternity leave. Why don't you come and join us for those six months? And that was exactly that. of just like serendipity actually leads to opportunities. And that was literally my first startup back then. To your question, what was it? There was actually a marketplace for pet sitters. So if you've got a dog or a cat, Yep. And you go on holidays and you can find anyone on there. Madpool's actually just IPO'd, I think, a year or two ago. And so they're doing really well. But I was there literally when there was like two, three people. <laughs> so what were you doing? Morning dogs, morning cats? Oh, seriously, I was doing everything. It was like on the call on the call with customers being like, oh my God, my dog ran away or it ate chocolate. And like, what should I do? And it's not like I'm a dog expert, but you're just figuring <laughs> things out. You become one overnight, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty quickly. <laughs> that was an industry no one even thought about 20 years ago. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Completely new, innovative. Um, again, like a customer problem, right? Okay. Where does that lead to? Because you, you've got some exposure. I've seen you've worked in big corporate as well. 
they've had consultancy background blended with this startup or accelerator mentality. Where was the sort of point where this is the way I'm going to go? Um, it was actually, like, I almost call it um, like the shower theory, <laughs> where you know you actually love something if you can't stop thinking about it if you're under the shower. And you've got those shower thoughts where like you're just firing with ideas and you just then know, oh my God, I am in the right place. And I didn't have that in finance and consulting previously um, because of a bunch of different reasons. But once I was there in the startup working and actually calling customers every day and making a real impact on people, that's when I was like, oh my God, I'm so motivated to actually make this better, bigger, have a bigger impact on people. And um, and that's when, when, when I knew that this was the right space. Okay. So how did you get the introduction to start, mate? Actually, again, like a moment of serendipity or increasing your surface area of luck to strike. I actually um, finished my um, job in another startup and went traveling around the world and kind of like thinking what I wanted to do. But um, the good thing I did was um, I put it out there again on my socials being like, hey, I'm looking for a job in an accelerator because okay. I actually want to help 50 companies rather than one company. Yeah, well, why? How are you going to do that? That's pretty, that's pretty good effort. That's a pretty big ambition too, right? Yeah, no. So, um, I mean, that's where I, where I was lucky to actually land and start, mate, because I can have that impact essentially a hundred times, a thousand times over. But um, why is that? Because um, I love just working on lots and lots of different challenges at the same time. Like um, one company is great and you actually become a specialist in it and you can grow with it and there's so many challenges. But personally, I just get so excited about just being able to have my um, finger on the pulse on like the whole industry. And back to your question of like, how did you actually land the job? Put it out on socials. Again, like somebody introduced me to somebody else. They introduced me to a job at Blackbird Ventures, actually, as like a head of operations. And okay. I had a call with Nikki Shavak, the founder. And um, I was sitting at the time, I think, in Colombia with like hardly any internet. So it was a pretty embarrassing call overall. But uh, actually, after the call, I was like, hey, I have no idea how to do this job. I'm not the right person. So what he actually then did off the back of it is like, hey, we've actually got a job coming up at Startmate. Why don't you apply for that one? And that's actually, again, like a moment of serendipity that actually led to another uh, real job. So the genesis of start Startup is Surrey Hills? Surrey Hills is definitely a massive hub now. Yeah. So in um, Sydney, Surrey Hills is buzzing. You've got essentially the break free VC funds over there. So yep. um, Airtree, Squarepeg and Blackbird. And you've got a beautiful kind of like um, thing going on with startups as well. We've got the Canva office, safety culture yep. office, Morse micro office. And the funny story I can tell you there is um, that as soon as one grows out of the space, they move to the bigger building and then the smaller one moves into their building. So they're all kind of rotating around. <laughs> so Michael, how much real collaboration is there amongst startups? Honestly, it's like not even comparable to any other industry. People are so happy to jump in and help you out. Anyone will have a 30-minute coffee. Anyone will um, help you in your massive challenge that you have. Because one of the disadvantages that you have at startups is you don't have that manager or director or VP who knows the answer. Usually the person who has the answer works in another company. So everybody is so willing to actually help each other out. So the scale now is what in value... You're supporting worth what, around about $1 billion, is that right? Yeah, so we've um, our portfolio is actually almost um, over 200 companies, over $2 billion by now. Probably it's $2 billion, is it? Yeah. Over 200 companies? Oh, uh, we've backed over 200 companies over the last 12 years, yeah. Okay. So of the 200, how many have gone on to be really successful? Yeah, so we've got about um, 10 to 15, which are essentially worth over $100, $200 million. So that's like 100 to 300 employees. Okay. Now, here's an interesting question for you. Those original founders who walked through the front door, say, 10, 15 years ago, or over this time period, 
how many of them are actually now running the show? Or do they then move on to the next startup because that skill set or that level of interest runs out? No, great questions. I think there's something to be said about founder-led companies is when that founder still stays at the helm of a company, right? Rather than a hired CEO, a founder, as I mentioned all the way at the beginning, is that customer-obsessed person who has that force of nature to rally a team around them. And and the best companies literally still have the founders at their helm, where whatever it is, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, um, I mean, Michael and Brooks and Scott Fark were being great examples at the Atlassian, where even after 20 years, they're still running an incredible startup. Well, not really a startup anymore. And they just have that real customer obsession that you can really like feel and tell. Okay. So for those people out there listening, what do I have to consider when I get that sheet of paper and start drawing up my plans, not even drawing up my plans and thinking about coming to see you and your team? Yeah. The best thing you can do is don't even start with the sheet of paper. Literally call a couple of people and be like, would you buy this from me? And literally start calling customers and start calling potential customers, start with those conversations. Because all you need to do with to come to me is tell me I've called X number of people, X percent of people told me I would buy this for that price. And I will know this is actually something that you're passionate about. This is actually something that is working and somebody truly wants to pay for it because it's a real pain problem. So seasonal trends don't come into thinking? I mean, we invest over 10, 20 year horizons, right? So seasonal trends come and go all the time. Like um, if I was investing in seasonal trends, um, <laughs> it will, um, we wouldn't really have a startup industry kind of thing. Like we invest in super boring companies as well. That's totally okay. Like the super boring companies actually often are the best ones. Like those boring industries need the biggest innovation. So what's high messiness and high autonomy? That's pretty much what you get in a startup. <laughs> so a high autonomy is very much the one of, and um, because you are a few people working on way too many challenges, you usually have such high autonomy to just like, get this job done, have a lot of trust. And it also comes with high messiness because if you think about a huge company, you don't have, um, you don't have many of the policies around. You don't, you're literally coming up with system on the go. They keep breaking, as I mentioned, with the rule of three every time you triple. And it's really, you only will thrive in a startup if you're okay with the time messiness and you love making order out of chaos. Cash flow. And I get it. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it all sounds great. I've come and seen it. Thanks for the 100,000 to 120. Yeah. Well, the way you're talking about, I'm going to burn that in less than 24 months, right? I need cash flow to survive, don't I? How am I going to get it? Yeah, so I mean, that's definitely the challenge itself where customers come into play, right? Like you can, um, what we usually say for B2B startups when actually sold to large businesses is that unfortunately, like getting that cash flow is actually the hard part. So what you usually actually end up doing is getting a letter of intent. It's almost like a letter itself sent by the business that I intend to buy your solution, your product if you build it for X number of dollars. It's not cash flow, it's not money in the bank. But what you can do with that is actually go out to, for example, venture capital investors and tell them, I need that money from you to actually build that product because yeah, I already have almost like pre-orders for hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars if I can actually build it. So there's one way for especially B2B startups and kind of like the um, D2C route when you go directly to customers themselves is for example, prepayments or pre-orders or if you can show that you can do that, that's a super powerful message. People are literally putting money on the table before you even have something, even yeah, if it's just a, a fraction of the price. That, that's incredible to see. I think oil tankers have been done in that in the past, sold without yeah. ever being built by people who have never done it before. Quite incredible. I've come up with an idea and I'm a startup. How long does it take someone else to find out about what I've got and start copying me? 
Honestly, the biggest thing is you shouldn't even care almost because again, like, as I mentioned, like it's not about the idea, it's actually about the execution and the best person to execute will actually make it happen. Is that what it's all down to? So if I went around, if I, you and I jumped on a plane tomorrow, went to the US, saw a new idea, came back, brought it here before anybody else did. We've got the edge up for all of about three months, maybe. Mm. But if we execute it better than everybody else, we're going to win. Um, absolutely. It's even if you're late to, to the party as well. Like often it is actually the companies which are not the first ones to have the idea, which actually are late on online, which actually make it. I mean, there's so many classic examples there with Uber. And before that, there was another company which was doing a pretty um, similar thing. And um, maybe another concept, which is actually really interesting, which we often look for in a deck is the why now. And that is actually something we want founders to articulate. Why is now the precise time in history that this is possible? It wasn't possible mm. a year or two ago. It will already be common practice in a couple of years time. But right now is this opportune moment that something just got unlocked where it is actually possible to do it way faster, way better. It's actually technologically possible, etc. I put all my time, my effort, I get results. What are the venture capitalists wanting in return? Because it doesn't come for free. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, venture capitalists, it's, it's kind of interesting. Once they back you, they want to see you grow, essentially. And one of the rules that they have in growing is actually what we call T3D2, which is triple, triple, double, 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 or like T2D3. So over the first five years of your lifetime, in terms of in revenue, they essentially want to see you triple, triple, and double, double, double. And if you do the maths, if you start with a million dollars, that essentially brings you to almost like a hundred million dollar revenue company. And that is actually the successful startup kind of pathway. Obviously, not every startup does that, but it's from a very crude metric perspective, one of the signals itself. What happens then? I get the hundred mil, five years <laughs> down the path. Am, well, I yeah, so get, am I going to get sold or what's going to happen to me? Am I going to get floated? No, so honestly, like one of the rules, for example, that um, Blackbird kind of has, not rules necessarily, but it was kind of like an internal joke of hashtag no exits, where it's the idea that they actually never want to essentially exit a company itself because they want to believe in that founder all the way till the end. It isn't even about the IPO itself. It literally is about backing a founder all the way till the end because you're believing in that person and you're not believing in just like financial outcomes. You're actually believing in them truly solving a customer problem. Okay. So where are the young people going to now? Am I going to the well-established organizations or am I seriously looking at startups? Yeah, so that's what I'm hoping. Um, more and more um, young people will actually keep doing because like startups genuinely are for the right person an incredible learning journey. You can 10x your learning journey because you get so much autonomy. And if you thrive in that chaos and you can truly bring order to it, that's when you can actually like grow so much faster than anybody else. Now with the student fellowship, we actually help 500 students every single year to go on the journey. And like 60, 70% of them literally end up joining a startup or starting their own startup. And it is actually so much around, lots of people think that they first need to take stepping stones, being like, I need to join a corporate to learn skills and so on. And then I'm going to start my startup. But um, why delay it? It is very much around that learning journey. You need to go on it anyway, and you're going to learn so much faster if you just go straight into the deep end and just figure things out. Yeah, you know why? Everyone tells me I'm not going to make it. Well, that's exactly the part of the belief which we need to change in Australia. It is exactly that around surround yourself with the right people, with the community of believers who will actually tell you rather than you won't make it, being like, you will make it. And how can you make it even better? How can you actually make a global difference rather than just an Australian difference, for example? We limit ourselves way too much. Yeah, do we really? Absolutely. Like it's, it is sad. Like we get a thousand applications from startups every single year. 
And so many startups essentially just start with Australian companies or New Zealand companies, but the markets compared to global markets are just so small. We like to think global from day one of like, what is that founder or the company which is thinking about customers worldwide rather than limit yourself to a market with 25 million people? So when's a startup no longer a startup? Um, <laughs> great question there. Honestly, it is all about that momentum and growth. Once that stalls, okay. that's like kind of when you stop being a startup. But it is actually so much around that founder mentality, around that mentality that you're truly solving the customer problem and you don't get bogged down in kind of bureaucracy and kind of like company running rather than actually solving customer problems. Yeah, that means you'll be a very, very good delegator then, don't you? Absolutely. And that kind of comes back to why there's so much autonomy in startups, because you actually want to enable and empower your team. You want to bring them as close as possible to the front lines and not let them kind of rot away in the back end in supporting roles rather than actually knowing and feeling that impact that you have in customers. Yeah, okay. But let me say this for you. So um, I've come down to seeing you. I'm really, really passionate about something I've got. And I think I've got a new bit of technology. And I know I'm up against some tremendous competition. Thanks for 120. We're off. Okay. Am I really going to allow that much autonomy? Because I know you want me to accelerate. Or am I a control freak? Because you know why? If I don't get this right, we're gone. Mm. And I've got to make sure everything is done right. Because you know what? You don't get many chances to get that sale or to get that long-term partnership or agreement that you're after and that I'm after. So am I going to let go or are they naturally control freaks? Totally. A great question. Because uh, like you said, there's so much pressure on you. Like your life no, savings. It's not, it's not, I don't just lose my job. I lose everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Usually people put all of the life savings that, um, in there. They raise from family and friends. They don't want to disappoint them. It is That's so right. much pressure on you, right? So like you said, it's like it is hard to then let go. But the best founders, they are the ones who then tell the story, bring incredible people on the journey. And it is actually that classic saying where like you hire people who are better than yourself. And if you easier said person, than done. Oh, easier totally. said than done. Hiring is super hard. <laughs> yeah, particularly if I can't pay for them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so like the and that kind of comes back to the mission and the vision. Like if you can if I can tell you you can change the world with X and Y and Z, people want to actually be part of that. And they are willing to take that salary cut. They are willing to actually go on a riskier path because and we probably all have that inside of us. And we just, so many of us bottle it up, but the kind of intrinsic motivation that I know that I can actually make a global impact. I can truly make a huge impact on thousands, if not millions of people's lives. And secretly, we all want to do that. Yeah. So I guess ultimately, Michael, I've got to believe it to see it, don't I? As Absolutely. opposed to see it to believe it. That's the type of person you want. You want people who are doers and not talkers. Okay. Who in the last five, six years that you've actually personally worked with has astounded you and what they've achieved? Oh, there are so many founders in there. Um, there's so many of my team members as well who are just incredible. I'll share another story with you here then. Another great founder, um, Chris Thompson, who is running a company called Amber Electric. It essentially allows any Australian to buy your energy in your household at wholesale prices. So rather than getting retail prices charged, you can literally buy them. You, just you, as you, got his, uh, you got his email address there? We're ready to go. <laughs> I am chris.thompson at amber.com. <laughs> I think he actually is okay with emailing him directly as well. But um, it literally is just like as much as the big players are paying, you will literally get the same price yourself. 
And the reason I'm so impressed with the company is, I mean, they just recently raised $20 million from Commonwealth Bank, by the way. And he started, um, his co-founder was working at Tesla. He started literally by himself at Startmate with not a single customer. They literally were just, just updating the regulations in Victoria, I think. And now this is now four or five years later, they have tens, like tens of thousands of customers all across the country. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Michael Batko. In the next episode, I sit down with Deanne Stewart, Chief Executive Officer of Aware Super. For me, one of the biggest lessons in life is spending enough time on self-reflection and being self-aware because that's where the growth comes from in those really <laughs> tough moments. Be sure to join us for our next episode. And now, back to the show. So, Michael, when I come to see you, okay, I haven't got that sheet of paper, but I've bounced my idea off. I've got some potential clients willing to engage. And you and I talk together and we get to know each other and you say, yes, now this is how we go about it. Do you coach me all the way through? Like, where does it begin and end with the organization? How do we partner together? So, um, one of the beautiful elements of our accelerator is actually the one of we bring mentors together. And the okay. mentors actually are ex-founders and we love ex-founders like Mike and Scott Frottier, founders of Atlassian like yep. um, Kate Morris, the founder of um, Adore Beauty. And we literally have founders from all the way from early stages to late stages, like the founders of culture and safety culture, et cetera, et cetera. And it's actually them who get to mentor you. And you get to hear the stories and the advice from people who've actually been there, done that, are a couple of steps ahead of you or dozens of steps ahead of you. And that's actually the beauty of the accelerator itself. You don't hear from people who would just give you a little bit of advice, but they actually truly care. And the reason they truly care is because we've got a really particular business model at Startmate, which mm -hmm. is that every single mentor has skin in the game. Every single mentor yeah, at Startmate literally has to invest $10,000 into the fund and they're directly yeah, okay. invested in your company, which makes just such a mountain of difference because rather than flying in and out and giving you a little bit of advice, they actually have money on the line. Skin in the game. Absolutely. So important. That's the crux, is it? It is. Honestly, it's like it makes a mountain of difference because now they are actually incentivized with like when things don't go well, they're there with you. If things go well, they're literally there to support you day in, day out. All right, Michael, I came in. We had a great chat. You gave me the 120. I blew it. Two years later, it didn't work. I'm in the 80%. Didn't make it. I come back in. I've got another idea. You're going to back me? Absolutely. Like we actually love that. <laughs> like it happens so often. And the reason you, um, we love backing second and third time founders is actually because you then have accelerated your learning path. You know all the mistakes you already did. And I actually don't care that you failed. I actually love that because you actually gave it a go. And it's people who give it a go, which actually are the people who want to be backing. It's so contrary to what we hear every day today in corporate Australia, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And that's the value of belief and ambition. Like it's exactly those types of people who we love surrounding ourselves with. Okay. So if you're going to scan and you've traveled the world, and I'm sure you're in touch with the global market, which countries are really leaps ahead of Australia in terms of that type of thinking? So Australia is definitely punching above its weight. I mean, the classic one is the US and um, actually Israel is doing incredibly yeah. well. They've got some great innovation because again, like the mental attitude and, and values are just so different of giving things a go. There is no stigma around failure and there is that kind of belief and that is so, so important. So like Israel, China, the US actually are doing incredibly well. China? China as well, like we don't hear much about it in Australia and um, yeah. that is actually a language barrier, but like... The beauty you have there is you're starting with a customer segment of a billion people. 
competitor of a customer segment of 25 million people in Australia, and you can see the difference. Which sectors are really, is the whole energy sector one of the best sectors I should be thinking about? What are the interesting sectors I should be really mindful of with future entrants? Yeah, no, super interesting question. Like overall, we say at StartMed, we, we are completely industry agnostic. We love actually investing in software, hardware, aerospace, software company. It actually doesn't matter to us as long as that founder has the custom obsession. But um, to answer your question though, like one of the segments that we are especially excited in right now is actually climate tech. And yes, so we're actually launching a climate fellowship to like help people break into that space, either start a company or join a company in climate tech. And the reason is obviously one of that is actually a huge challenge the world is facing and we need to solve it. But on the other side, there's also a practical reason for that as well, because those types of companies and as you and I talked so much about people joining and bringing the right people on board, they actually have the advantage that the best people want to work for them. So actually, one of the hardest things you have is hiring great people, but they have the advantage that great people literally are like applying, wanting to join them, and are just so passionate about the area as well. In sort of percentage-wise, again, I'm, I'm interested in this from your experience. How many people really will take that call and leave that safe, safe job, guaranteed income, to go and risk my, my employment? My, you know, we've got to pay the mortgage, interest rates are going up, inflation's up. What sort of percentage? Yeah. Do you think really willing to take that call and actually not just take the call, but act on it? I think it's an interesting question. I would actually um, challenge that view with a slightly okay. different one, which is the one of we think about startups as so risky because there are small companies and there are like whether they're going to succeed or not. But um, if you think about the actual people being laid off in safe companies like a CBA, okay. like the Westpac and so on. They do redundancies of dozens of thousands of people, right? Whereas when a startup does a redundancy of 50 people, it blows up in all the different unions lines. If you compare the numbers, the actual you know, risk in a large corporate where you just are a cognitive wheel, you are not potentially stagnating in your growth and stuff is actually way riskier than actually being in a startup, creating the optionality for you, learning new skills. And even if it doesn't work out, you actually are so much more employable because you have figured so many more things out. Every company wants that innovative kind of mindset there and those kind of skill sets. What sort of percentage then would you would you say the the economy is based on in terms of startups? Yeah, um, probably not that many. Um, I think there are stats by the Tech Council, um, which are really useful. There was something said around like there needs to be a million people working in startups in the next kind of like five to 10 years or something like that. And we're nowhere near there yet. It would be in the dozens of thousands of people who are actually working in the startup industry. But a crazy part about that is we all know that those people will literally create the companies of the future. It literally, these will be the largest employers. These will be the largest areas to actually work in in five to 10 years time. All right. I'm at Commonwealth Bank or I'm at Westpac or I'm at BHP or I'm at some major corporate either in Australia or some part of the world. I'm going to take you out, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, well... Um, You're a threat. I don't want you. Hey, look, I've got a distribution channel. I don't want you guys ever near me on. Yeah, but the beauty, of, the beauty of that is actually what the principle we talked about earlier, which is speed of getting something like that done in a large bank takes forever. Like that's what startups are not even afraid of because they can pivot, they can move like literally overnight. They can completely come up with a different marketing campaign with a different functionality. Whereas actually implementing that functionality on the CBA website, I don't even know, it takes you 12 to 18 months <laughs> to change a button. So got to get the message out. I've started up. 
Again, you backed me. Got to get the message out. How do I market the message in today's world? That's one of the hardest challenges because so many of the marketing channels are getting oversaturated. Again, the beauty of startups is that you're able to be way more autonomous and creative and go against the norms and not play almost by the rules itself. There's some incredible startups um, who then essentially advertise way cheaper than anyone else can. Um, so to answer your question specifically, the traditional pathways are actually very much Facebook and um, Google advertising, LinkedIn advertising for talent and kind of social media. I mean, a huge one right now is TikTok because of its discovery where, again, like corporates struggle to actually break into that space. By the time you actually hire a team who knows what they're doing, they're probably all 18, 19 years old, probably very culturally different to the core of your organization where startups like that is your culture. It is literally like that break the rules and try something new. And that's where the huge advantage of startups actually is. Okay. That might get people to come and join me. Will it get me clients going through that forum of or that medium? Yeah, that is a huge acquisition channel itself. But like you said, the actual real difference is only if your product and your experience is incredible. Because you, what you're really relying to on a long term is that word of mouth. It is literally customer satisfaction, which is everything. Because they will actually keep telling their friends and family. And that's how you will actually grow um, naturally. It's that retention and the referral of the back of it, which is super important. All right. How important then? Is it that the owner or owners are the face? Actually, surprisingly not. Um, it's just one way to play it. I've actually seen okay. different quite interesting stories here. On the yeah. one side, it was an interesting story from a startup where they came up with this marketing campaign where the founder would tell the story of how the startup started. And the funny anecdote here was they would literally write the story up a hundred different times in a hundred different angles where the final version was nothing like they actually started it, but because it resonated from a marketing angle. <laughs> On the other side, what I've actually heard from another startup is that um, they literally created a fake LinkedIn persona who is literally the person posting all the things because it just resonates with their target market way more than the founders, for example, and the faces would. Because it's again, okay. like it's actually about solving the customer problem to actually get their attention. It's not necessarily about the founder having this huge ego being in front of hundreds of millions of people and being famous. All right. Let's, let's think another thing. I've got the great product. I know the market. I think I've got the market. It's a very competitive market. I get told if I go, if I drop price, that's a race to the bottom. I'm not sure that's, that's true or not. You may have got some thoughts on that. That's the first part. Secondly, I'm knocking on the door to that, that client, potential client. How do I get them to take the risk to come to me? Mm. It's such an interesting one because, um, I mean, again, maybe I'll give you an example here um, just to really illustrate what you're saying there. Like one of the hardest industries to actually change your actual base is how often do you change your superannuation fund? Never. Never. Exactly. Like that is so hard. Like acquiring customers with superannuation funds is ridiculously well, same hard. Same the bank account, right? <laughs> totally. You never change it. So actually superannuation funds themselves probably spend like hundreds of dollars just for like for one customer to acquire them because it's got such long-term value. So we've yep. actually got a company um, called Verve Super, which is a super fund for women actually. And they only invest in women-led um, businesses with purpose, etc. But again, like they work in an industry which is traditionally super hard to acquire customers. And like who would even swap? Like you're swapping into a company which is new, has a smaller customer base, etc. The reason why they, for example, get customers on board when you said like knock on somebody's door being like, hey, join me, is because they've created this incredible community around it. And it's actually right. undervalued how much people just want to be surrounded with other people who face the same pain problems, who they can talk to, and so on. So they've actually created the customer experience, which is nothing like the established players, where they can actually acquire customers way, way cheaper and retain them for way longer because they actually are a purpose-led company. 
So you're building a community in that sense. Yeah. So that's one way to essentially make your product better. Community is a great way. Yeah. Okay. And that's through narrative and that's through a different form of engagement. Yeah, totally. Like it's almost, um, sometimes it's counterintuitive where you almost want to step away and let the community help each other because we all have the instinct of actually just going in super deep and helping everybody ourselves. Pricing. How do I start? <laughs> Honestly, it's one of the hardest ones. Like we get the question all the time and there is actually no answer here. It's literally the willingness of people to pay. So if we have one kind of like tip or advice, what um, startups usually do is they underprice because they just want to get in the door. So yep. what we always recommend or what usually then happens is increase the price steadily until you actually notice that people are dropping off and you want to find the equilibrium where you actually are charging enough and people are literally finding it still incredibly cheap, but not that cheap that they were going to be dropping off. So it's, it is more of art than science, if anything. <laughs> so what about the old theory about being reassuringly expensive? <laughs> Unfortunately, with startups, it's a pretty hard one because you kind of want to get customers actually to give you feedback, to iterate, to test your product. In your early days, actually, what you care about is that they pay you something because it gives them skin in the game. But in your early days, actually, actually, what you care about more is that feedback because you, what you really want is to iterate that the product is going to be 10 times better than anybody else. All right. So I'm buying feedback in that sense, am I? Pretty much, yeah. Because honestly, feedback is actually from customer feedback is the most important ingredient because you actually, number one, you're building the right thing. And number two is you're building it for the right people. Okay. So the argument out there that moving price up is impossible, that's not accurate at all. Oh, no, not at all. Like um, I actually started a, um, this is my side hustle. I started a productivity company called PuddlePod where I help people become more productive. And um, I started it for free for 15 people and they gave me great feedback. And again, like the customer feedback made it better, charged a hundred bucks. 50 people joined. I increased it to 300 bucks. Again, like 100 people joined. I now increased it to 500 bucks, which is kind of my kind of like uncomfortable state of like, I wouldn't charge more for it. Um, and at 500 bucks, still like 100 people join every three months to literally just like get better at their inbox, at their to-do list, etc. So now you can absolutely increase prices and it's exactly finding that equilibrium. All right. Now everyone goes on and on and on about customer experience. CX, CX, CX. What actually is it? It is super important once you get somebody on. And um, one of the metrics that we always ask for in our startups that we track religiously at StartMate is actually the net promoter score. Net, how many people would be raving about your company at a barbecue? When I say raving, I mean, they literally go in at barbecue and they walk up to you and go, you wouldn't believe this incredible experience I had at this company. Unprompted, you didn't even ask them. They're like, oh my God, I love this company. That's an experience of nine or 10 out of 10. And then you actually subtract the people who are essentially like a zero to seven out of 10 who would actively go into a barbecue a party and tell you, oh my God, I hated that experience. And that's actually the crucial part of figuring out, do you have customers who will literally be screaming out into the world, join this company, they're amazing, love this product. Do you ask them to do that or they volunteer to do that? Pretty much every company does it because that's that's almost like lifeblood of the company is they live and die by the experience they provide to the customers. I'll give you a benchmark actually, which is okay. um, the highest NPS of a corporate actually in the world is Apple. And they've got an NPS of 40% of customers are net promoters. In startups or at Startmate, for example, our net promoter scores is between 80 to 90 out of 100. When startups is that because essentially- I've got a smaller amount to deal with? 
not actually not necessarily because of the smaller amount for us it's actually all about the community it's like once you're bought into something you're an alumni you actually want this to go better this is why like being part of something and part of a community is actually so important and as i grow does that community stay with me or do i lose it great question I'm, matur- I, I, I'm maturing aren't i yeah totally absolutely and people keep changing and so on so it's so important to actually maintain the community recreate it create a little like like you said the larger it gets the more diffused it gets as well so it's so important to design that with purpose in smaller groups which actually again are solving a customer problem rather than just like making something bigger for the sake of making it bigger who's the best you've seen at community building and at their superannuation fund that i mentioned verf super is doing an incredible job there Start made itself. We're doing a great job there because we've got a community of probably over two to three thousand people now. And otherwise, there's actually not that many people who where you truly sign up just for the community itself. You might have like a local running club kind of thing, but that's pretty much yep. about what you um what else you'd get. So that's speaking of local running club, you're pretty hung up on or focused on the one percenters, eh? I love it. Yeah. So um, as part of the productivity course that I do, we focus so much around just like literally getting a little bit better like, every single day. So yeah, I'm, I'm a lot about like building habits and just doing things continuously every single day. So for me, that's um, running 5k, meditating and going for a swim here in Kuji every day. And you see that mentality all the way through in most startup, successful startups? The best ones do it. Like it literally is the one of, um, there's another great quote being like culture eats strategy for breakfast. And um, which is just a one of like, it is literally about like, what are you creating that people will live and breathe every single day? And maybe another great quote is like, what are you not willing to walk past is another way to actually like capture kind of values. And it is literally like those habits, those rhythms, the everyday behaviors, which actually make and break a company. Yeah. Okay. But at the same time, you say a good strategy is sequencing events to build strength along the way. Love right? it. A yeah. strategy. Yeah. Execution, isn't it? Or what is it? Uh, it's one can't of the have, most, you can't have eggs everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most nebulous terms. Like you give somebody a task of like, write me that strategy. They'll sit on it for three weeks and four weeks later, they still don't have anything. Um, That's this, right. <laughs> this is why actually I love that quote, which you just read out because um, it actually is the realization that the strategy is not about like finding that one thing and doing nothing else at the exclusion of everything else. It is about actually sequencing the journey that you're on where you actually want to be built and put the building blocks almost like on top of each other because you know building block number one will make building block number two better and it actually is around like sequencing your roadmap itself rather than just focusing on one thing and doing nothing else so you're talking horizon one horizon two horizon three or language like that eh? yep that's another um way to frame it yeah okay and the the really successful builders of businesses how much time do they spend on today versus future and tomorrow mm. actually what i just did um, is i interviewed 15 ceos of 15 startups and i literally just yeah. published it a couple of days ago on my on my blog batco.substack.com but um essentially i asked him exactly the question of like strategy and like how do you set goals and uh, where do you spend your time and um to answer your question one of the best answers i heard is um from kim tail who is the founder of mr yum so if you go to a restaurant and you order with a qr code that's actually oh, yeah, what yeah, you're yeah. using mr yum and Kim was amazing because I asked her, how do you see you? And that was my kind of like starting question. And she goes, um, I asked my team, what do I do incredibly well? And they kind of give, gave her the feedback. And the one line which stuck with me is, you see around corners. And that's actually, to answer your question, that's actually what CEOs and founders are great at. They know what the next kind of challenge is. They know what the next opportunity is. 
and they protect the company or let it grow with that. So you always need to look into the future and actually know the next kind of couple of steps. Okay. How do you set the tempo in the organization? How do you keep that momentum? Yeah. Because it's, again, it's easier said than done. And it's day in, day out, isn't it? Absolutely. It's relentless. It's every single day. You actually need to show up as a leader. You need to be that example, which people um, want to emulate. And that's like, maybe specifically to, I talked about it a couple of times about values of startups. That is why it is so important to not just have values on the wall as a statement, but actually like living and breathing them every single day. And the best founders are literally like, they represent those values day in, day out. And, and they really create those guardrails around what is and what you should and shouldn't be doing. So when you walk into a startup, what do you feel? What are you looking for? You almost start looking for that energy. And I think that's such a nebulous term again, but it actually, you know it when you're there. They're like people are buzzing, talking to each other, solving problems, just like, are literally obsessed with it. There's nothing worse than actually walking into a room and everybody sitting there by themselves too, like being completely silent. You're actually looking for that constant kind of chatter around like, all right, how can we actually like 10x that, make it better, make it smoother. That's the litmus test, is it? Yeah, definitely part of it. And when you see one dying, that's when you hear quietness there. That's exactly it. It's like we ask all of our startups actually to send us a monthly update where we just want to get updated every single month what is happening. So one of the great frameworks, and I do that myself actually, I publish it even on our website, is you write a good, bad and ugly. And that's really hard okay. to do. You literally publish of just like what has not gone well and what is truly ugly in your company. And to be fair, well, we put do- it, put it- Put it out there. Uh, personally, I actually put it out there and I increased that surface area for like the strike and it's literally like publicly on our website. To be fair, most startups don't do that and they shouldn't. They actually send it to their investors of like 10 or 20 people who they truly trust. But um, the importance there is actually the ones of the best startups will write that update religiously the first of the month, every single month, even when things don't go well. Actually, especially when things don't go well because they know that when things don't go well, that's when people can help you the most. And the startups which are dying or unfortunately don't go do the well, they essentially drop off in terms of the communication. And it's actually when things don't go well, that's when you can actually get the most value. Okay, so you put your stuff out in, on your blog, did you say? So that particular one is about Startmate itself as a company. So it's actually on startmate.com on our website. Okay, and you think, so someone's going to read that and they're going to volunteer and try to help out. I also sent that as an email to about a thousand people in our community. Every I literally published it this morning on the 1st of February at 8 a.m. <laughs> okay. What's the feedback you've had? Um, I probably got like 20 different replies from Gee, different- that's good. So um, I also sent it to most of the VC funds around the country, to all of our alumni, etc. No, there was some really good feedback in there. I guess the striking difference in startups versus traditional is the openness, isn't it? And that's exactly the point of just like in startups, people want you to succeed. They actually are not no people. They don't tell you why things don't work. They actually want you to be successful. And that is such a refreshing attitude. It's actually the people you want to be around. Another interesting aspect is actually humility in terms of leadership. If you're prepared to put that out to the market or to share it and take feedback, which is not for every CEO who's got a you know, fairly healthy opinion of their own ability, what are you going to change on reading that feedback? Are you, going to, are you really going to take it and adapt mm, absolutely yeah so like like you said it's painful it is super painful like i like, see so you read some of those sentences you like hate it and you just think about it for half the day and yeah but yeah again like progress equals 
pain plus reflection. And it actually pain and pain to a certain degree is necessary for your progress and your growth. So it's actually like, this is what we tell founders over and over again. It actually is almost necessary to get the pain and leaning into that giving and feedback actually is often pain. Feedback often is something that you actually don't do well, but it's actually the only way to grow. And um, by putting yourself out there, it is uncomfortable, but it is actually the only way you're going to grow. So look, how much do you put on experience then? So, you know, traditionally we always came through and our experience is so and so important. How important is experience? It really depends. Like there is a bunch of experience, which is super helpful. For example, managing people, like managing people is super hard. Like being a first time manager, incredibly hard. So that's actually an experience, which is, which is useful because you don't go into the traps over and over again. In terms of experience of like what an industry looks like or what a product should look like, et cetera. Actually, often you want people to unlearn that because they can so stuck onto like, this is what experts say. This is what my experience was. The best founders are actually almost naive. They actually believe that they can do something because they don't know better. And it's actually that naivety where everybody else goes like, there's no way in hell you're going to be able to do that. Whereas they go like, no, I'll be able to. And they probably don't know a couple of things, but they literally run through those walls and go at it. The behaviors of some of these leaders, if I was to contrast them to what we've read about historically, I'm sure you've read leadership books. What, what is unique about these individuals, how they actually operate? You know, is it a Monday morning meeting or is it a Monday night meeting? Is there no meeting or is it I've just walked up, everyone, get around the screen? What is it? Yes, yeah. Interestingly, because again, I interviewed 15 CEOs to ask exactly that question of like, what meetings do you even do? And it was quite interesting because um, nobody essentially had the kind of like golden answer. Some of them like structured one-on-ones, some of them like kind of like not even have one-on-ones and with the team kind of the consistent feedback, which was quite interesting, was twofold. The first one was um, everyone always does all hands or getting the whole company together every week or every fortnight to really like talk about the mission and the vision and to say thank you to the team and to actually get them on board of what they're building. And the other kind of interesting learning in here as well is how important written communication actually is. And written communication is actually a way to distill your own thinking on a page to make it clear and then to actually being able to tell that to hundreds of people in a consistent manner. So that was quite an interesting learning for me. And the environment the ones that organizations do well is that the harder environment, now you look at, say, the investment banks, you've got to have a bit of um, strength about yourself because you, you can't hide and you're there to work and you do perform. Or is it the other ones which pat on the back all the time and a nice little note from the boss? Yeah, I don't think the answer is either. It is so, it is, the answer though is feedback. And that feedback yeah, okay. needs to be, can be positive pat on the back, but it also needs to have the counterbalance of just like, and we actually like, um, I like asking this question of my team and we ask it every single one on one that I have is what could I have done 10% better? And it's again leaning into that pain of feedback and, Often you're just not willing to share with a coworker, hey, this was not quite right. But that's actually the feedback you want to have. And that's the feedback often people don't tell you. Michael, difficult one for you. Do I bring an older generation of people into startups? Oh, absolutely. Like, um, you can definitely join a startup. As in, like, startups are not just for young people. I think the public perception always is the one of startups are for the 20-year-old founders who drop out of uni. Whereas, no, absolutely not. Like many of the best startups actually have been founded by people who have been in this industry for a long time, who are industry experts, who know it inside out. And it's actually in many industries, you need to be super deep to truly identify that kind of like, oh my God, that is fundamentally broken. And that is not possible to stay like that into the future. So no, absolutely like age does not make a difference there. 
Okay. And those existing major corporates, are they worrying? <laughs> um, I mean, worrying um, depends on which industry. It's like some of them, if they know things are broken, I'm sure they worry all the time. And to be honest, disruptors come. Like there's so few companies actually in Australia and the world which have been older than 100 or 200 years, right? If you think about it, it's actually nothing in the course of history. So absolutely, there will be companies which will become incumbents themselves and actually completely disrupt an industry. So many companies come and go and we don't even remember them 10, 20 years later. Okay. So if I'm startup and I'm putting out there trying to win customers and someone else has been around for 30 years, well-established brand, known, et cetera, et cetera, where's the customer at now making decisions on been around the block, survived versus new, cutting edge coming at me? Yeah, totally. It's kind of interesting because like it again, like depends on what industry you're in, et cetera. But that's actually what you just said there. You can use that as an advantage. You can go, mm. I'm young, I'm fresh, I'm fast, I'm, I'm better, I will take care of you because we are less and we have less customers. You don't shy away. You may away not be from- around tomorrow either. You <laughs> may not be around tomorrow. <laughs> but you go with the excitement part. <laughs> That's right. But obviously, there's like different industries have different thresholds to switching your provider, your kind of like supplier or something. Like we said, superannuation industry, way harder to actually get somebody on board. Whereas where you're going to buy your next chairs or couch from, um, it might be much lower. Like, do you care about the company, whether they're going to be around the next month or not? That's actually not necessarily in your decision factor. So one of the companies, which, for example, in that industry does incredibly well is Koala Mattresses. And Koala is a great example of a traditional industry which has been around forever. And you can say mattresses are not necessarily getting any better. But what they do incredibly well is they deliver your mattress to your home, you unpack it straight away, and you can return it if you don't like it. And so again, like speed, cuteness, great brand. They back Koalas every time you actually buy from them. So you can actually play with a lot of those factors to get customers on board. And people then love them so much that they then upgrade into a couch, into pillows, et cetera, et cetera. Based on your experience, major corporates who create incubators, and i.e., in other words, try to do a startup within the own organization, do they succeed? <laughs> um, you probably hit here one of my pet peeves where, no, I obviously hate them, um, <laughs> where... Um, I always say there's essentially like four different business models in accelerators. The first one is actually a government-backed accelerator where like you get government money and um, unfortunately government money is like for two or three years you get a grant and then you essentially die because you don't get that money again. The second one is actually a university accelerator. University accelerators care about the alumni and they're interesting to get graduates out there, but what they care about is actually the alumni and just getting you kind of out of the door. The third accelerator is exactly what you said. It's actually the corporate-backed accelerator. But the reason I hate it is actually because, and it all comes back to incentives. Like, what is the incentive of a corporate accelerator? It's either to acquire you later down the line to actually, like, integrate you into the business, which usually just never works and doesn't happen, or to actually upskill your own executives to become more innovative. But what's the worst thing that you can do to a startup? expose them to executives in a corporate and who have never done or been in a startup who move slowly. Like that just doesn't help the startup at all. They won't get the customers they need and they won't get the right advice, which is why I am so bullish on the startnet approach where like every single mentor is a founder, is an ex-founder, is putting their own money on the line to actually truly help you as a startup get your customers. What's the best advice you received? I would actually go with, um, in the previous job I had was very much around like not being a perfectionism and just going with that 80 20 rule we've talked about of just like giving something a go, getting feedback and iterating and um, rather than really getting hung up on something. Look, part of that obviously is decision making, isn't it? 
speed of decision making. Yeah. And that's half the, that's half the challenge most people face is they can't make decisions. Absolutely. And you have decisions which are irreversible and you have decisions which are reversible. And the reversible decisions, you actually, that's the ones where you can actually make fast decisions and you want to speed things up to unblock your team. One of my rules actually is before I even go into my own to-do list and my own priorities, I first unblock my whole team to just get them going and make those decisions. Whereas the irreversible decisions, that's actually where you want to spend more time on um, and and give it some deep thought. How much do you rely on I guess gut instinct these days, Michael. Um, you just never will have perfect information in any of the decisions that you make. So yes, you actually rely a lot on your gut instinct. When things feel uh, like don't feel right, they usually are not right. And that is essentially um, actually the biggest one or the biggest mistakes you can do are in hiring. And here, every single time you hire and you have that gut feeling that something isn't quite right, that's when you really need to dig deeper. And that's some of the biggest mistakes I've made as well. Okay. Data or data, whatever word you want to use, is it key? Not in the early stages. Oh, actually, I've got two answers here for you. Like on the one side, it's the one of in the early stages, all you care about is those customer stories and really unpacking what is true in there. Data can help you make those decisions, but it's too abstracted. You don't actually truly know what the experience of somebody is and what is behind the data, whether it is an NPS score, whether it is number of clicks on something. You actually really want to understand the motivation of people, especially in the early stages of a startup itself. The other kind of answer that I have for you was actually, again, like a really interesting one in my CEO interviews that I did was the one of, um, um, I talked about OKRs and goal setting to somebody of like, how important are they? How do you do them, etc. And the great answer the CEO had was the one of, I don't care about dashboard because they show you the, the past and they don't show you the future. And I actually kind of liked it. And the other kind of answer she had was, I don't really care about coming up with new benchmarks because if you never cared about the number in the past, why would you suddenly start caring about it now? Oh, he really has his play, doesn't it? <laughs> it is so much around, like, I mean, you're disrupting an industry. You're making something fundamentally different. If you play by the rules that everybody else plays, you're going to become average. You're going to become like everybody else. What you actually need to do is do things differently and look around that corner. So we're in an interesting time now in the Australian economy. How are you, gonna, how are you seeing it in the next, I don't know, 12, 24 months? We've got inflation up. Interest rates up, but unemployment's incredibly low. Mm, totally. So, like, especially with unemployment, it's an interesting one where where it is actually just becoming harder and harder to hire great people. So, in that sense, actually, I would say startups are the best industry there because you actually can still attract great talent because you have that mission and purpose led environment. And to your other point of like interest rates um, are high and the kind of financial markets. Um, I always say to this one of like the best founders will still succeed and the best companies will still get funded because everybody knows that you're actually building something that, which will genuinely make up the majority of the economy in the future. It will make the biggest number of jobs in the future. And that's kind of the part which I'm never afraid of backing myself. Is most of the whole startup philosophy built around technology? Technology is a pretty wide term, to be honest. Like we have backed um, startups from software to hardware to aerospace. We've back the startup which does um, seasoning powder which tastes like bacon um, and okay. that is innovative in itself but actually the technology that they use is that they're incredibly good at marketing and coming up with new products themselves it's actually almost a rate of innovation in iteration which is important in technology all right so then you're looking at then the capability to scale exactly that is like that capability to scale that growth rate they can actually do that kind of like innovative thinking itself to actually 
fundamentally change something that has existed for a long time. Coming to the end now, earlier in the conversation, you said you're going to push me, push me, push me, or bake me really hard, etc. right? When do I break? It's actually mental health is such an important part of accelerators and actually founders. Because like you are so deep in your startup, you probably work on it 24-7. You've got money on the line yourself from your family and friends. It is one of the hardest journeys you can actually imagine. Like I almost like one way to it has it has been described to me is a founder is like chewing on glass every day with a smile on your face. That's how painful it actually is. And mental health is so important. Like we always say we actually need to take care of the founders as a person before taking care of them as a company. Another great saying that um, that we live up to all the time or like that I love is not creating a second patient. It's one of the ideas of like, if you are a patient yourself and in need of help, the instinct of many founders is to help everybody else who are patients as well, who might be um, lying out dying on the street under quotation marks. But if you don't take care of yourself, you actually can't take care of anybody else. It is that importance of actually taking care um, of your mental health before before going down the dangerous pathway. If you were to look back at that young, you're still relatively young anyway, um, that younger man who was what working what walking dogs all those years ago, what advice would you give him now? Um, apply for the job you actually want to have rather than just taking stepping stones and learning skills along the way. So many of us think we need to like build up your CV and stuff and just like delay what we actually want to do further down the line. And I think that's one of the most misguided uh, pieces of advice that we get. Like actually just do what what you truly want to do on that michael thank you very much for making the time today (laughs) thanks so much for having me you've been listening to no limitations 